Thank you for joining us for the Midweek Bible Study with Dr. David Wilson. Now let's join Dr. Wilson for a more in-depth study of the Word of God. All right, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Why did I pick 1 Thessalonians? First of all, they bribed me. The ones that did that wanted that instead of 1 Corinthians, they paid more. <laughs> Not really. Not really. First Thessalonians is a book of hope. And you know what? We need a little hope, don't we? So we, I think it'll be encouraging to us as we look. Turn to, turn to chapter one. How, how does a person live for Jesus Christ in a society where faith is constantly under attack? Where you can be blacklisted or you can be ostracized for openly professing to be a Christian. Christians, whether you know it or not, are under attack. How, how can you raise children with a healthy reverence for God when those around you and a lot of people around you seem to be living in open defiance of God's commands? And how are you supposed to live a life of integrity when everyone around you is cutting corners or doing whatever they can possibly do to get an advantage over you or anyone else? Now, you may think those are questions that are posed by the 21st century. Actually, they describe the dilemma that the Christians in Thessalonica were facing. In fact, a close look at their world reveals some very eerie similarities to us. Although they lived in an era before television and computers and smartphones, the core problems they faced are still the core problems that man has. Man doesn't change. Only God can change his heart, but mankind is still basically down deep the same without Jesus. Um, we just have different toys today. You don't, I don't have to tell you we're living in uncertain times, do I? Individually and as a society, it seems like we're heading in the wrong direction. Seems like it's getting worse. And from the economy to the morality to the politics, a lot of it seems to be collapsing all around us. But just like Angela saying, God is the God over the storm. And rather than throw up our hands in discouragement, Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians that challenges us to live out our faith even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So let me begin by sharing with you that this is an epistle of hope. An epistle is not the wife of an apostle. The epistle is a letter. And you can really find the founding of the church in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, the first nine verses. Now, we're not going to turn there and read it, but let me just tell you a little bit about Thessalonica. It was a seaport town in ancient Greece, and it was really at a crossroads between east and west travel. There was a wonderful port there. So ships came from literally everywhere in every part of the Mediterranean Sea. You may remember in history that phrase, the Ignatian Way. Well, that highway system connected Rome to Asia to the east, passed right through Thessalonica. 
It was a major place. It was a strategic center, and whatever happened there would soon spread everyone else, spread everywhere else. Now, the population had four main groups of people. You had the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews and the Orientals. And most of those people were pagan worshipers. They worshiped all kinds of idols and and made-up gods. And when Paul visited there, he went there on his second missionary journey. And when we're told in Acts that he preached three Sabbaths in the synagogue. Now, we don't know if that was 15 consecutive days. He didn't preach preach consecutively, but we don't know if there were three consecutive Sabbaths, which would be 15 days, or it might have been a little longer period if he had not preached consecutive Sabbaths. We don't know for sure. We just know he preached three Sabbaths, and the people loved him so much they ran him out of town. Paul's brief ministry resulted in a very small congregation of new believers and then Paul had to flee for his life. And, and the believers that he left behind were predominantly Gentile believers. Now, in order to understand the letter of, to them, you need to really know one important fact that Paul left Thessalonica before he wanted to. He didn't really want to leave. I, he had to flee for his life. And so after leaving it left these believers, some of them knew, wondering about him. Was he for real? Was he a flake that got in here and left? Uh, was he valid? That Some of them were tempted to give up this newfound faith in following Jesus. They didn't know what to do. Can you imagine somebody coming in here and leading you to Christ and three or four weeks later is gone. And you know nothing about him before. You've just raised in a pagan background. And so they were confused. And after leaving, Paul went to Athens. And from Athens, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing. And then Paul went on to Corinth alone. Timothy eventually told Paul how things were going at the church. And evidently, he told Paul that the church was doing well, but there were a few issues. There was, they were under intense pressure to quit following this Jesus There were certain rumors against Paul being spread that he was not legitimate and he had to leave town so so suddenly. And there were various moral and doctrinal problems in the church that had creeped up. So he wrote a letter of encouragement to them, to this young, brand new congregation. And that's the letter we call 1 Thessalonians. Now, the city of Thessalonica exists even today. In fact, it is the second largest city in modern Greece. Sometimes it's, it's still called Thessaloniki or sometimes it's called Salon, uh, uh, Salonica, S-A-L-O-N-I-K-A. There's several things I want to tell you about 1 Thessalonians before we look at these first few verses. This is one of the oldest books in the New Testament. In fact, probably the only books that are are earlier or older, I should say, written first, is probably either Galatians and or um, James. And they may have all been written around the same time. And so this is one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. It's one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It's only 79 verses, so it doesn't take you long to read it. 
Whenever you get to that point when we're reading through the Bible, this will be breeze for you. <laughs> I heard that amen. Rock. It, one good thing about the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's one of the easiest books to understand because there's no complicated theology to ponder. Everything Paul writes is simple and clear and direct. It's not a doctrinal dissertation. It, it, it doesn't raise a lot of hard questions. It's just a very short, encouraging letter to a brand new church plant. It's one of the most practical books in the New Testament. In fact, in these five short chapters, there's a wide range of truth, subjects like true conversion, integrity, compassion, the word of God, heavenly rewards, suffering, prayer, moral purity, hard work, the second coming of Christ, the role of a spiritual leaders, dealing with difficult people and testing spiritual gifts. And because it's so clear, this is a great book for new believers to read. It's really easy to understand. Now, one interesting thing about 1 Thessalonians that every chapter has an aspect of the second coming of Jesus. In fact, let me show them to you right quick. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. In chapter 2, look at verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? In chapter 3, it's verse 13. So he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, you've heard verses 13 through 18 so many times about what we call the rapture. And then in chapter 5, you have verses 23 and 24 that talks about, may you be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the reasons it's a book of hope is because it talks about the second coming of Jesus. That's what gives us hope, isn't it? Don't you wish he'd come on? That's a selfish, that's a selfish wish because there's so many people that are not prepared to meet Jesus, but this is a letter of hope. So it's a great letter for us to look at and be reminded of in the next few weeks. So it's not only an epistle of hope, let's notice the establishment of hope. Paul identifies this congregation in verse one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the letters of Paul to the churches, there are nine of them. They are addressed to seven different congregations. You're, you're going to find when, when Paul writes these letters to the churches, he loves the church. He does. In fact, in, first, in Corinthians, he calls those, he says, you're the sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be holy. He tells the Romans, they are loved by God and called to be saints. He tells the Colossians, you're the holy and faithful brothers at Colossae. He absolutely loved the church because he understood what the church is. It is the only institution for which Christ died. And it's the only institution that Christ set up to, through which the gospel is supposed to be presented. You do know that's our job. 
It's not the government's job to present the gospel. It's the church's job. That's what we exist for. And in the world, there are many great institutions and organizations created by men to do many good things, but the church is the only one that's originated by God and commissioned by him to take the gospel to the world. So what we do through the church is not just good work. Folks, it's God's work. What we do through Southcrest is God's work. And it's, it's like it's emphasizing the unique role of the church. Paul reminds the Thessalonians, he said, you are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in him. Now, how encouraging would those words be to new believers who their leader had left? And, and he said, I want to remind you that you're the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prayed for them. He thanked God for them because they had experienced salvation. Salvation is not in the church. Salvation is in the Lord Jesus. And we need to remember that because there's a lot of people today who think salvation is in their church. Well, notice two things he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you've, you've seen that every time Paul writes a letter to the church, he starts with that grace and peace. So what does that mean? There's two aspects of salvation. The first one is grace. We sing about grace. We think it's amazing. Grace and peace to you. Those always go together. You can't have peace without grace. Grace always comes first. You don't have peace and then grace. No, you have grace first. They always go together. You'll never have inner peace until you experience God's grace. And without God's grace, you have no hope. What's your hope of going to heaven? <laughs> the grace of God. He's going to let us. And when Greeks... When the Greeks greeted each other, they would say grace to you. But to the Greeks, it was more like, it wasn't a spiritual term. It was more of a, like saying goodness go for you, goodness to you. You know, we still say things like good morning or good afternoon or good day. But grace became the central theme of Paul's theology. Why? Do you remember how he was saved? I mean, if there was anyone that was anti-Christian, it was Paul, or Saul, I should say. And he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he experienced God's grace, didn't he? And then the word peace, actually Paul's combining two customs of his day because the Jews greeted each other. They would say shalom, which means peace, and they sometimes... The church was composed of both Jews and Gentiles. And sometimes, believe it or not, the Jews and the Gentiles didn't get along. Can you imagine that? It's the first sign of a Baptist church. <laughs> and Paul, Paul was really showing that these two cultures could come together under Jesus. So really, he kind of invented this new grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. It became a distinctive Christian greeting. And so you establish the hope. One of the reasons we have hope 
Even though we're, we're, we're fed up to here with all of this stuff that's going on. I know, I know you're frustrated. All of us are. But we still have hope, don't we? Life's been turned upside down. Businesses have been upended. Our schedules are way off. We can't even do the things we want to do. And yet we still know we still have hope. And the reason we have hope is because God's grace has fallen on us and we have peace in our heart. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of God. And because of his grace, we have his presence in our life. He indwells us. Now, did you know when you know the Lord, there's going to be some evidence. I've told you before, it'd be nice if God put a tattoo or a mark on us or something. Say right there. I got this when I was 12 years old. See, I'm right there. I'm a Christian but it didn't work that way. So how do you know? What is the evidence of the hope that is within you? How do you know people at Southcrest or the people who know Jesus have hope? One of my, one of my favorite stories, and I've told it to you before, but you'll still laugh. It's about a man who went on his first cruise and he got seasick. If you, have any of you ever been seasick? It's not fun. Trust me, it's not fun. I, I don't really get seasick, but my wife does. But this man went on his first cruise and he was seasick. And when you get seasick, you're nauseous and you throw up. And this man had been throwing up over the rail outside. I think he threw up everything he ate in the last year. He was so sick and some man walked up beside him and patted him on the back and said, don't worry, buddy. No one ever died of seasickness. And he said, don't tell me that. It's the hope of dying that's kept me alive. <laughs> well, we know that one day when we die, we're going to be oh, very much alive still. We're going to be with the Lord in heaven. So there's three things he mentions in verses two and three, look what he says. We give thanks to God always for you all. I see he was Texan, for you all, for y'all. This King, new King James translation. Making mention of you in our prayers. I hope that you love your church. I hope you love the people. I hope you pray for them. But then notice these things right here. He said, remembering without ceasing first your work of faith. He mentions a faith that functions, that's working. It's a faith that is shown by their works. Good works are the products of living faith. You don't work for faith. You work because of faith. And folks, I want to tell you something. The Bible never teaches that good works produces faith. There's been a debate raging through the years since the beginning. It's a debate over what it takes for a person to go to heaven. Does it take works or faith? And that debate is still going. Sometimes it was not a friendly Debate. Christians have killed other Christians over this disagreement. This ongoing disagreement was the reason that there was a Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Because basically, when the Catholic Church was ruling over the Holy Roman Empire, 
They taught that salvation was only in the church and to prove you were committed to the church, you had to demonstrate good works, you had to attend mass and take the sacraments. And sometimes if you wanted to go sin, you could buy an indulgence. Now you can read history, I'm not making this up. But there were still a few Catholic priests who were reading the Bible. And they couldn't find that anywhere in the Bible. So one day, a German priest by the name of Martin Luther went down to his church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he said, salvation can't be bought with money or good works. And he had 95 objections written down, and he took a hammer and nails and pounded it on the front door of that church. Those hammer blows were heard around the world, and the battle cry the battle cry for the reformers, and we are a result of that. The battle cry for the reformers was sola fide, faith alone. And the other cry was sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now that's still a debate today. If you have Catholic friends, and I do too, be nice to them. But they are taught that the church and the traditions of the church that are handed down over the years are just as inspired as the Bible is, but the Bible doesn't bear that out. So we're the people that believe in scripture alone. That was a needed correction the reformers made, but the opposite of that, the other extreme, is now people say, well, you have to work. You gotta do all your works before God will save you. And listen, we can all be legalistic because man makes all kinds of rules. A lot of people think it's what I don't do that saves me. I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this. We're like the little boy who teacher asked him in school one day, boy, what's your name? He said, Willie, don't. <laughs> Obviously, he'd been hearing that a lot. Well, it's not that Christians don't. It's Christians have been saved by faith. And of course, the truth is found in understanding how faith and works complement each other. Ephesians 2.8, for example, says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Nothing that we can do, no product that we can make can earn our salvation. It comes through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And even those of us who've been taught that all our life, if we're not careful, we become a Pharisee again. We, we revert back to, well, I need some measurable things in my life. So if I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this, then I must be a good Christian. Now, obviously the Lord tells us to do some things, but then we begin to have a list that we're checking off. And, and there's no freedom in that. In fact, I read an interesting devotional in our daily bread that said for, this, whoever wrote this said for 30 years, I had assumed that to swim, I must constantly struggle to keep from sinking. One day an expert swimmer watched me for a few minutes and then shouted, stop fighting the water and trust it to hold you up. And he was right. Under his direction, I lay flat in the water without moving hands or feet. And to my delight, it held me up. 
So why didn't somebody tell me that years ago? So many people constantly struggle to become Christians if they just would trust Christ and realize that he does the saving. He does the holding. He's the one that changes your life. You don't have to keep fighting it. Our faith and our trust is not based on works. However, faith does produce good works. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. I told you time and time again that when you come to know Jesus, your life does not stay the same. He begins to work on you. He begins to produce things in you that you never dreamed you could do before. He, you never thought you would ever be to this, this place. You know, I, I've often said, I shudder to think how mean I would be if I didn't know Jesus because he's kept a lot of things in control and changed my life. A strong faith will produce a desire to serve because it's what God created us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So all of these, these jobs around the church, when people are greeting and they're helping with parking lots and they're helping in the children's area and the preschool area and whatever it is that we're doing, it's just a sign that, you know what? I want to be part of God's kingdom. I want to be part of the solution. I want to help. I want to do something for the Lord because he saved me. That's one of the evidences of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The second one he mentions in verse 3 is his labor of love. There's a love that labors. Love comes first, then the labor. Now, what's the difference between work produced by faith and labor prompted by love? The word translated labor is a different word than translated work in that labor carries the implication of pain and toil and hard work and sacrifice a lot more different than just like an occupational work. The second phrase is talking about laboring and sacrificing that is prompted by a love for people that only God could put in your heart. The agape love is not an emotional love. It's a love that says, you know what? I want to see people hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to see people saved. I don't even know them yet. That's the kind of love we have. Let me tell you, these, these Thessalonians had a correct view that Jesus is going to be coming back. And there, and there are people who are dying before he comes back who have not trusted him as their savior. And they were willing to labor to try to reach out to more people. Why do we do the things we do? Plant churches, do missions, preach the gospel, disciple people. Why do we do that? Because we love them and want them to grow. Sometimes Satan seems to come in and have us focus on other things than the eternal things. And when we lose that focus about getting the good news to people, 
we lose what we're supposed to be doing. A lot of, you know, we get asked as a church to have a lot of organizations be part of us. But the bottom line is the church is about the gospel evangelism and the fellowship of believers. And if it doesn't fit into that um, definition, then, then it doesn't need to be part of the church. Really, I mean, we, you know, there's a lot of good organizations that would like to use our building and have their meetings and all, but we try to limit it to the function and direction and the vision that God has given our church. And that is to reach people for Christ. How many of you have come to Southcrest within the last three years? Let me see your hands. That's awesome. Did you know there were people before you that loved you enough that they helped provide space for you to come to? Now, I know that's a simple way to look at it, but... You know, I know a lot of people, I've been here long enough that I I bury my friends now, but I know a lot of people who had the vision and the love to keep making more and more space for more and more people to come. They didn't even know you. That's That's a love that produces labor. And let me tell you, it was labor. It wasn't easy. People have sacrificed to give, to pay, and to, and to make it available. I'm using that as just one example. There are people that, that they study every week for their Sunday school lesson or that Bible study that you're part of, and they labor for that. Why? Because they love you, and they love the Lord. And so part of the evidence of hope is that There's sacrifice involved. We do the things we do because we love Jesus and we love other people. The church is not a place for selfishness. Now, obviously, people come in here because there's something that's meeting some of the needs that they have, and there's nothing wrong with that. But but you don't join a church or you don't become part of a church just so that you can just take from it. Hey, when you love Jesus and you have hope, you want to be part of something like that. And then the third thing in verse three is notice he says, and the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, our father, there's an expectation that endures. Hope comes first, then endurance. If you don't have any hope, you're not going to stay with it. The hope is the expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. Hope is the power that you hold on to when you want to quit. It's one of the strongest temptations that Christians have today, and we're seeing a lot of it. We're seeing a lot of Christians that just say, you know, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to quit. What keeps us going? The fact that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Wish I could tell you when. And, we, and, and we're going to be having some difficult times, but, but you can just almost hear Satan come and say, well, well, why are you doing why? Why are you working so hard? Jesus isn't coming back. He hasn't come back yet. When do you think he's coming? Peter warned about that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 and 8 and 9. He said, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, 
Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Verse 8 says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Oh, no, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why has Jesus not come back already? Because he wants some more people to be saved. And it gives us more opportunity to reach out to them. He's coming. If you think about it, we, we, we talk about eternity. Did you know we were not made for time? We weren't. Sin, when sin entered the world, God put it um, out of the garden so they wouldn't eat of the tree of life for eternity. We are eternal creatures. And think about it. What if God allows you to live 100 years here on this earth? Now, what's 100 years compared to eternity because it's hard we can't fathom eternity but all these folks have gone before us I promise you one thing they don't have a watch (laughs) they don't need a watch when you get to heaven you're not going to need a watch there's not going to be any night now I'm not sure how all that's going to work but the glory of God is going to fill the place there will be no night there who knows? And we're not going to be in, a, in, a, in an eternal worship service. We're going to, it's, heaven's going to be a great place. But, but you got to realize that as we serve and we sacrifice for people that enter into a relationship with the Lord, we've, we've done as a church, we have great joy and know that, that we're part of God's work. We're part of what he's doing. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19, for what is our hope, our joy, or crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And it's up to you and me to keep reminding each other of that. Let your hope endure as you wait for the coming. If we have hope that keeps looking to Jesus' return, we know he's coming it, it strengthens our resolve. Sometimes we just think, are you ever going to get here? He's coming. In fact, if I'm reading my Bible correctly, it's closer than it's ever been. Um, you know, hope, hope is a powerful force. True story. Rabbi Mitch Hertzvitz tells a story about at a New York City University concert There was a distinguished concert pianist who suddenly became ill and could not finish the concert. And there was an old music teacher at the college nicknamed Herman who got up out of his chair in the audience and he walked up on the stage. Herman sat down at the piano and with great mastery completed the performance. At a party after the concert, a faculty member asked Herman how he was able to play the difficult pieces from memory with such great skill. And Herman said, in 1939, 
When I was a budding young concert pianist, I was arrested and placed in a Nazi concentration camp. And putting it mildly, the future looked bleak, but I knew that in order to keep the flicker of hope alive that I might someday play again, I needed to practice every day. And I drew a keyboard on my bedboard and began by fingering a piece from my repertoire late one night. The next night, I added a second piece, and soon I was running through my entire repertoire. I did this every night for five years. It so happens that the piece I played tonight at the concert hall was part of that repertoire. That constant practice is what kept my hope alive. Every day I renewed my hope that one day I would be able to play my music again on a real piano and in freedom. It was his hope of performing again that gave him the ability to endure. What gives us the ability to endure is knowing Jesus is coming. There are times we want to quit. There are times we want to just throw in the towel. And Paul the man who writes the most about hope. You know, when he entered a city, he didn't ask what kind of hotels they had. He probably looked at the jails because he's going to wind up there. <laughs> and when he preached, revival didn't break out. Riots broke out. And the man who wrote the most about hope personally endured shipwrecks and beatings and stoning. And in spite of this, his hope in Jesus Christ gave him the endurance to hang in there. We have something the world doesn't have. The grace of God that gives us peace. And with a hope in Jesus Christ. I want to close by reading this. You may have heard it before. The author is unknown. It says, when things go wrong as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high and you just want to smile, but... You have to sigh. When care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is hard with its twists and turns, as every one of us sometimes learns. And many a failure turns about when he might have had one had he stuck it out. Don't give up, though the pace seems slow. You may succeed with another blow. Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint of the clouds of doubt, and you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems so far. So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worst that you must not quit. We have the only hope the world didn't give us just think of all the people right now who are facing all of this chaos and they don't have the peace that passes understanding. Yeah, I didn't say things were easy and I didn't say they grieve, didn't grieve and I didn't say they didn't worry, but the fact is we're going to get out of this world alive. <laughs> we're going to get promoted one day. So don't quit. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been a blessing to you. 
If you'd like to watch more live streams or additional Bible studies, please go to southcrestlive.tv. We hope to see you again next week.